Hey guys, it's Sean, and as 2022 is coming to a close, I'm sure you're thinking about year-end reflections, year-end reviews, and then how do you set and accomplish the goals you want in 2023? Well, if you're one of those people who's interested in that, I put together a 30-minute presentation. Now, this is what I use with the clients that I coach, some of which have been on this show, some of those high performers who are really trying to uncover what worked for them in 2022, what didn't really reflect on that, and then jump into 2023 with uncovering what really matters to you in life and then building goals and habits around that. So if you're interested in that, if you really want to get the most out of your coming year, then like I said, I put together a 30-minute presentation. It's my ultimate annual review and jumpstart into 2023 program. Now, this is what I use with the clients that I mentioned. So if you're interested in checking that out, just click the link below. You can watch the full presentation there. And if you're interested in working with me one-on-one to help you in your annual review and jumpstart in 2023, just shoot me an email, sean at whatgotyouthere.com. Once again, the link is below for you guys to check out the video presentation. And if you're interested in working with me, shoot me an email, sean at whatgotyouthere.com. Thanks, guys. Hey, guys, it's Sean. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Pauline Brown. Now, Pauline is someone who has had a massive influence in building some of the world's most influential luxury brands. She's the former chairman of North America for LVMH, where she oversaw and led 70 brands across five different sectors. Now, early in her career, she held senior executive positions at the Carlisle Group, Estee Lauder, and Avon, and she began her management career at Bain & Company, and she currently serves on the board of the Neiman Marcus Group. And she also, if that wasn't enough, designed and teaches an innovative marketing course called The Business of Aesthetics currently on faculty at Columbia Business School, and she previously taught this at Harvard Business School. And today on the podcast, we are going to dive a lot into what she's learned over all these years. And she talks about this in her book, Aesthetic Intelligence, how to boost it and use it in business and beyond. And that's what we're going to talk about, the importance for any company around aesthetics and intelligence and connecting all of the senses in a customer's experience. And the good thing is, Pauline has discovered that you can cultivate your aesthetic intelligence. So get ready for a wide-ranging, fascinating conversation with the wonderful Pauline Brown. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you? I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Hey guys, it's Sean, and I'm launching a new podcast called Momentum Minutes. Now, don't worry, what got you there isn't going anywhere. But after talking to countless listeners, the number one thing I kept hearing is you want more wisdom in less time. And that's why I'm launching the Momentum Minutes podcast, so you can hear the most important ideas I'm discovering in about a minute a day. Now, this is going to be the most impactful minute of your day, giving you the fuel, inspiration, and momentum you've been looking for. Now, after spending over five years interviewing over 300 of the world's most successful people and reading hundreds of books, I'm distilling down the best ideas and sharing them on this podcast. Think of this like you're sitting down with your wise mentor each day to get their timeless advice. Momentum Minutes is a daily podcast that is now available on all podcasting players, so click the link below or search Momentum Minutes in your favorite podcasting app and hit subscribe. And after listening to a couple episodes, let me know what you think by sending me an email to sean at whatgotyouthere.com. Pauline, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? 
Hi, good to see you. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to dive into this conversation. There, there are so many different parallels that I found both in, in your career and how you think about things um, across many different people that we've had on the show. But I would love to start with a quote of yours I came across that I just love. So bear with me here for a second. It's, through diving, I uncovered another gift guts. While others on my team balked at the dangers of an inward somersault tuck or reverse dive-in pike, I simply went for it. I learned to park my brain, focus on the mechanics, entrust my kinesthetic intelligence, and embrace the possibilities rather than the risk of each move. Yes, at times I suffered. I experienced more than my share of belly flops. They were painful and embarrassing, but I survived and I progressed. And as my degree of difficulty grew, so too did my confidence. But to this day, many of the same qualities that propelled me in diving served me well in other areas. When faced with daunting challenge, I continue to park my brain, entrust my abilities, and embrace the possibilities. I know that confidence mm. comes with mastery, and the combination enables me to reach new heights. Pauline, this is—I I love this quote. I thought this was incredible. Oh, thank you. And I would just—you know what? It's so funny that came from a Forbes interview that I want to say was close to ten years ago, before I had written the book, mm -hmm. before I had even started down this particular journey of aesthetic intelligence. Um, and I'm so interested that you brought it back. I forgot about that interview, but now that you've brought it up, you know, one of one of my more recent kicks, which maybe we can get into later in the show, is the different forms of intelligence above and beyond aesthetic intelligence, or maybe even as part of aesthetic intelligence. And one of them that I come back to time and again is kinesthetic intelligence. So uh, we should we should talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I would love to just hear your thoughts. Obviously, a decade since you've said this, just thinking about some of those things you talk about, like having the guts, exploring the possibilities as opposed to some of those limiting beliefs, and then parking your brain. When, when you hear mm -hmm. that quote, what really resonates with you? What do you feel like you still continue to embody today? Well, I mean, I think the first thing I would say is, um, you know, having guts is not synonymous with being fearless. You know, I, I was afraid every time I did one of those d dives that kind of defied defied what my body really would have wanted to do or directions that it should have naturally gone in. Um, so the fear never went away, but the um, the willingness to confront it um, and to balance the fear is something that has never gone away. Um, and to this day, as I go down paths I've never done, you know, I host a radio show. Before that, I had never done broadcast. I wrote a book. Before that, I had never writ written a full book. I teach. Before that, I had never gotten in front of a classroom other than a, you know, one-off lecture. So for each of those, there's always a bit of um, of nervousness and fear of failure and uh, fear of embarrassment. But that is never um, overweighed by, I guess, that sense of possibility, which is why I keep going. Can you actually talk about, you mentioned the balance there between the confidence and then the fear. What is that like when you're thinking about doing something new, writing a book, starting a radio show? How does that, how do you work through that in your own brain? Yeah. I mean, well, the first thing, which um, I would say is really something that comes with time and judgment is not being reckless. Mm -hmm. So there comes a point where taking risks, where confronting your fears is just reckless, you know, um, and it gets people into deep trouble. Um, and I see that all around. Um, we're seeing it unfold in front of us with the uh, crypto crisis and particularly with FTX. Um, so the balance is knowing, knowing, uh, or at least having a good enough sense of how far you can push yourself in order to grow um, and in order to build that muscle, 
without pushing yourself so far that you may break down your body and you know to to speak metaphorically and um and and so there's always a balance um and i think in business a good leader is always balancing conflicting interests and if he or she is not dealing with the tension between two opposing opportunities there's probably something wrong and in my world those two opposing forces are typically commercialism and creativity. Uh, they don't go hand in hand, at least in the near to midterm. A lot of things that companies do to drive sales, you know, to scale, uh, to automate, defy all the other things that I talk about companies need to do, which is to touch people in a more meaningful way, to create beautiful products that last, uh, to build stories and propositions that you know, stand the test of time and that move people in more profoundly. And both of them create value, um, but often in very different timeframes. And the role of a CEO is to balance those two opposing forces, not to do away with one or the other. If I see a company that is commercially really well run, but has no soul, I say it's just a matter of time before that company goes away. If I see a company that is all art and feeling and vision and uh, has no um, you know, business fundamentals to support it, I say there's no way that that's going to work unless it's sitting in a museum. Uh, it still has to be sustainable economically and operationally. Do you have an example of what a company with soul would look like? Uh, you know, I think uh, Apple under Steve Jobs had a soul, um, and the soul was largely, or at least it emanated from his soul. Uh, he wasn't a... Um, uh, he wasn't a flawless man. He had uh, a lot of issues and a lot of constraints, um, but he had deep conviction. Uh, he was a fighter for what he believed in, um, and he um, and he believed in an idea that was so much bigger than the business proposition anyone could measure, at least in that time frame. Eventually, the business proposition and the valuation of the company caught up with his vision. Um, you know, I think when uh, every time Howard Schultz comes back into Starbucks, his big push is to reinfuse soul into their coffee houses because everyone who has succeeded him and preceded him, because he's come back now at least three times, has has driven that soul out of it. And at the end of the day, if you're just going into Starbucks to grab a cup of coffee at a premium price in a noisy environment with bad food, you're probably not going to come back or you're going to go to Dunkin' where you can get it a lot cheaper. Um, and so he realizes in his depth, like in his core, that he has to create something that speaks to people more profoundly than just a cup of coffee. Um, I think most companies that uh, have survived the um, the test of time and survived with products that are not necessity, I'm not talking about Exxon, right? But companies like Disney, I mean, Walt Disney's soul still is very much a part of that ethos. His soul was, he had a very original view of how he could immerse families, particularly with young children, in a fake world that was magical. And every detail of those parks and those films and those products sort of it, it is infused with that, with that, with that philosophy toward family fun. Can you go further on that infusion, right? I'm thinking about these companies that survive 10, 15, 20 years versus those 
once in a generation, 100 year type companies. And I'm wondering in the early days, do they look somewhat similar? And are there key distinctions? I'm, I'm just wondering how you would wrestle through which company is going to last a decade or two and which is going to be a once in a generation, 100 year company. Well, so first of all, we we never know until it's really tested. Um, I know with pretty strong certainty at this stage in my career, because I've seen so many young businesses come and go, that if they don't start with a um, a certain philosophy and a certain commitment, that they won't last. You can't make it up later. Mm. But there's a lot of companies out there that uh, have started with um, with a founder that had extraordinary taste and vision and um, and imagination, and it just didn't survive him or her. Usually, him. Um, that the, the so the the biggest risk that that young companies face is that they can't scale beyond the founder. And sometimes the breakdowns happen in that founder's lifetime, where he or she gets a business to a level that exceeds their ability to continue growing it. And sometimes it lasts through their lifetime, but then you have succession issues. And the next generation, whether it's a family member or a hired help, can't, unless they've really um, sort of been um, cultivated in a certain way, unless they understand the more profound instincts and drives that the founder, you know, was able to use to get that business off the ground in the first place and speak to consumers in a way that made sense for them, unless that thought process is sustained then most of those businesses will fall by the wayside. Because as I say time and again, the vast majority of what is sold, even if it's unique in some aspect, it's not unique in such that it really is irreplaceable. Very few products from a functionality standpoint are irreplaceable. And that's true at every price point and with every you know utility I could imagine. What is irreplaceable is a relationship that is expressed through the products or services, through the culture of that company, uh, through the style, the style of the people, the style of the brand. Those things are truly unique if done well. Hmm. And uh, and they need to be preserved and they need to be understood. Can we actually open up the understanding of this and uh, around what you wrote about aesthetic intelligence? And I would love just for the audience, open up, what is aesthetic intelligence? Uh-huh. Um, well, so I, I, I was an English major undergrad, so I'm very um, particular about my word choices. So aesthetic. And let's, so let's just start with what is aesthetics. It's uh, not what most people think. Um, if you ask the vast majority of people what is aesthetics, they will say beauty. Um, they will say it's about design. Often the implication there is it's about visual elegance. Well, it can be, although it has to be. So aesthetic comes from the Greek word aesthetikos, which is um, about perception of the senses. So a related word, which is used in a very different context, is like an anesthesiologist, right? An anesthesiologist's job is to numb your senses so that when you go into surgery, you don't feel pain. An aesthet's job is to arouse your senses so that as you experience life or art or any other um, sensorial touch point, that you, your, your senses have come alive. So it is very much about the five senses, first of all, not just visual. We live in a visual age. We focus a lot on visual. We are very, very um, under-attuned to how powerful the other senses are. And we can get into that later. Number, so that's number one, what is aesthetics? 
Um, number two, I would say when I mentioned a moment ago, it doesn't have to be beautiful. What it has to be is moving and exciting and memorable. So if I think of, there's a term in, in French, which I use a lot called jolie laid. Um, it's a great term. It, the direct translation, the word jolie is pretty and the word laid is ugly. And the word, the term jolie laid is, uh, or has historically been used to describe a beautiful woman's face. And what makes her beautiful is there's something a little bit off. It could be like Lauren Hutton's, you know, gap in her teeth. Could be a mole. Uh, could be even a little crooked nose. It's something that is imperfect that makes her that much more beautiful and memorable. And so when I think of aesthetics, it's not really about this sort of harmony and about this uh, sort of idyllic version of things. It's where a lot of companies go wrong with their design. Um, they try to take the best from what they see in it, and they get all together. Uh, and if people this year like certain, you know, color palettes and certain silhouettes or or shapes, they again try to incorporate that. But it 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 comes from a very sort of perfectionist model, and it feels cold, it feels flat, it feels impersonal. Um, and so where where I am interested on the individual level, but even more importantly in this conversation on the business level, is how can you, you know, take elements of imperfection that make something feel real and different and interesting and use that to your advantage? Um, and, and I can give you plenty of examples. So your second part of your question is what is aesthetic intelligence? Um, first of all, companies are not aesthetically intelligent. Um, companies are, you know, are just economic entities. They are comprised of people and individuals have aesthetic intelligence, right? So it is something that sits within individuals. It's a, it's a huge differentiator. It comes from within. It is never, um, you know, expressed through a boardroom meeting or a outside agency or, you know, some sort of clinical process. It's taste. In a word, it is taste. What forms taste for these people? You say it's, it's embedded yeah. in them. So um, I've studied this quite a bit because I'm fascinated by how you can take a population of people and even when they've grown up in the same environment, maybe even in the same family um, and have many of the other sort of similar qualities, they can have markedly different tastes. Where, where is aesthetic intelligence born? How, how does it come of age? And why, why do people have such markedly different tastes, even people who grow up in the same environment? Well, um, in a nutshell, there are three different forces that shape each of our tastes. They're not the same proportion of influence. Uh, and I think even that would vary from person to person and from um, from uh, vertical to vertical, but I'll share what I mean by that in a moment. So one is a culture. So in any given time in history, you know, there are trends in fashion, there are trends in um, that have nothing to do with taste, but they actually do shape our taste. The way the environment is progressing or unfolding in the case of current times, um, some of the, um, you know, sociopolitical shifts that go on, uh, you know, think of the Bauhaus and how that sort of came out of a post-World War II era. These are forces of a time and a place uh, and a people. There are different cultures. If I'm sitting in Paris, I'm sitting in New York, but not even France versus America. It might be Paris versus Provence. They have very different expressions of taste. So culture is a, which is both time and place, 
is a big one. The second is um, personal influences. So we've all had the experience of early or at some formative time in our life being exposed to certain individuals. It might be a grandparent. It might be a, a superstar. It might be uh, an icon that, you know, kind of represented our model, a model, a benchmark that we held out there. Um, nowadays, it might even be an influencer. And um, But generally, the closer home it is and the more present that that that, that those um, human influences are at certain times in our life, uh, the more impactful they'll be um, and the more longstanding they'll be in their influence. So it's why oftentimes when you ask people, you know, why they're particularly sentimental about certain, you know, keepsakes, it has some connection to their family history and a story that goes with that. So there's, there's a sort of relational uh, element. Um, and then there's also genetics. So, you know, in a very, uh, basic way, I would say there's actually, for example, a marker, a genetic marker for people who like versus people who don't like cilantro, right? That is, and that is a taste. You, some people find it enhances um, a recipe and some people find it is absolutely inedible because there's cilantro in there. It tastes like soap to them. So, um, we have we are we are you know biochemical and our chemistries react differently to the same input. Even you could say that's with color. We all you know unless you're color blinded, uh, which is you know more prevalent than we often talk about. For most people, you know we gravitate to certain colors uh, because of also how we receive those colors. And even the same shade of purple, you don't need to be colorblind, but some people have much, much sharper acuity for the different variations of a purple and, and others don't. And that is just the way, you know, your, your, your visual neurological systems are processing. So there, there clearly is a, um, you know, this sort of personal genetic um, piece to it. But I would actually say that that is the smallest portion of the three. I just want to highlight the reason I really wanted to talk to you and why this is so important, where so many people I know who listen to the show, they're they're more quantitative based and they're thinking, what the hell does this have to do with, with the company I'm going to invest in, the business I'm going to run? And I think about someone like you mentioned, Steve Jobs, right? Like he made the back of that Mac as beautiful as the front and what was in the hardware uh, was just so elegant. And then you brought up a great example in your book um, around Rolls-Royce, the legendary car company, and they switched the inside material to a more plastic-based, I forget if it was a dashboard or something like that. And what ended up happening is the customers, they, they realized there was not that new car sense and, mm -hmm. and they missed that. And what they ended up doing mm -hmm. is they went back to wood and then the 10% boost in sales. So, so many of these little elements, so many of these things, it's like when we mm -hmm. walk into a certain, certain store, there's a feeling we get. And it might not right. always be easy to describe, but that feeling influences us. And I think, and I love the depth you've gone to. And I'm curious, like, where did this inner desire to explore this for you, where did that evolve from? So, you know, if I think about my career prior to uh, the current stage, I was um, working in a number of large uh, companies. Um, my most recent as head of North America at LVMH, a company that generates now well over 50 billion euro a year across 70 plus different brands in five different sectors in over 100 different markets. And it doesn't sell one thing that anyone needs. And I was astounded. And I wasn't embarrassed to work for a company that sells 
a you know um, thousands and thousands of SKUs of products with no utility. I mean, nobody needs a champagne a bottle of champagne. Um, there's no utility. You don't quench your thought thirst. If you're really thirsty, there's both cheaper and I would say more effective uh, beverages to choose from. So, but and the other interesting thing, if I take the LVMH example, is not only was it a big company with customers that gladly paid in every market around the world a premium for their products and wished they could afford to buy more of them. But some of those products had been around for hundreds of years. You know, I just mentioned champagne a moment ago. Um, a Maison like um, like Renard or Dom Perignon goes back to the 1600s. So it wasn't like a flash in the pan where people were just, you know, buying something off an infomercial only to, you know, never come back. People for hundreds of years have been buying these products. Um, and and so I, I started with this false assumption, which I think a lot of people still have, which is, well, that's all well and good if you're in luxury or these design-driven companies, fashion, you know, but beauty, which I also spent many years in. Um, but what does that have to do with me? I'm in financial services, you know, I'm in heavy industry. And, 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 and they're right and wrong. And I was right and wrong. I was right that it has everything to do with the business I was in. There was no justification for someone to buy a Dior bag for $4,000 or $6,000 simply because they needed, you know, a little sock, a sock to put their wallet in, right? That There was no rational um, uh, justification. So I was working in these companies whose only justification was to make beautiful products that are aspirational, that are presented, you know, uh, impeccably, and that create desire. And a lot of companies are not in the business only to do that. But where I um, started to feel otherwise, and where I would say I was wrong, and people who still have that assumption that this has nothing to do with them are wrong, is I really said... Most companies are not as extreme as LVMH, where they wouldn't exist without this. But nor can they win without having elements of this. And the vast majority of companies are doing nothing with this. So the point I'm making is, you know, Steve Jobs could have said, as was the case when he started in computing, that all I should care about is microprocessing power, uh, device size, um, speed, which is related to the other, and um and price you know that's and that would be a very industrial mindset you know um and that is the way you know dell and and historically and hp and ibm all functioned but he said i can't not deliver those functional elements i have to at least you know there's a there's a point of entry um that you know that i have to compete with but i'm not going to win against much bigger players on that front and not only did he win, see so much, you know, the company he built is so much uh, more highly valued than any of those others today, but he redefined the industry he was in. And it wasn't an either or, it was an and, but it was a big and. And I do a lot of work now with the automotive companies, you know, and similarly, um, I've worked with Mercedes, I work with BMW, and I've worked with Ford. Um, Mercedes gets it. I would say they get it, particularly when it comes to the design of the car. Not so much when it comes to the other elements, like a showroom, which they don't control, but still. Um, so I wouldn't say it's quite as experientially exciting as some of these um, 
you know, other luxury segments like fashion. Ford doesn't get it at all. And uh, and that was my push for them is not to say it. First of all, this isn't just for the shouldn't just be relegated to the domain of rich buyers who have unlimited budgets at every budget. People want to surround themselves with beauty uh, at every budget. People want to be excited. Uh, they want to have things that are meaningful. Uh, we are at the only time in human history where more people are dying from overeating than from malnutrition and starving. Right. We have too much stuff. Even you know, the poorest segments of society really aren't wanting for a T-shirt in most pockets of the world. They want a better life. And part of a better life, and I've even studied, you know, tribes in sub-Saharan Africa, they still, you know, want to have, they want to put beads on, they want to paint their faces, they want to create, you know, um, beautiful environments for their festivals and their, their, their family celebrations. This is human. This is not a luxury that, you know, should be contained to one rather small pocket of of all of our you know uh, economic uh, outlets. Yeah, it seems like there's a there's a serious disconnect here between the way we're being marketed to, right? Like hitting on some of the the the, the computing power or or the the let's just call it how fast the car is going to go. What, what what have you found in the companies that nail this? How do they market? How do they speak to their customers? Well, the first thing. Um, you know, I think that we have to remember, and this is true even in B2B businesses, but it's certainly true in B2C, that the customer, whoever that customer is, and whatever factors they're using to ultimately make a buying decision or not, are emotional beings. And they they are not just customers, they're not just consumers, they're humans. The people who are selling to them, your employees, are not just, you know, functional specialists. They're not just on the payroll, they're humans. And so one of my larger missions here, or motives, is we got to humanize the entire chain in order to get there. If you don't recognize that as a leader, your job is to mobilize humans in ways that, you know, give them pride and and uh, commitment and and um and and oftentimes turn them into customers of your products as well because they genuinely believe in the value proposition. If you don't believe your customers have lives that have worth above and beyond the, the few seconds they spent clicking, you know, the buy button, um, right there you're going to fall into the trap that you know I would hope business gets out of. Um, so it starts with just and and that's just a overriding philosophy. And from there, if you, you know, if you treat everyone in the system, or if you at least are cognizant that everyone in the system, you know, is 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 human above and beyond their role in that value chain. And then you start to think about, you know, how what how do they make decisions? Well, they're not just rationally uh computing as an algorithm would some cost-benefit analysis. They're not, you know, we're not computers. Um, and as I said earlier, we have so many choices. So what we are do are doing more often than not, and, and some people would say as much as 85 to 90% of the time, our final decision is how did that product or service make us feel? And if you don't understand uh, that they are a feeling being and you're a feeling being, and what are the things I can do in all touch points, in some cases that cost nothing, 
to elevate that feeling or to deepen that connection, that's where it starts. It's really about, um, and and so when I said it doesn't always cost things, like people assume, well, you know, I'm running on a tight budget, particularly if I'm a startup. I don't have money to hire some, you know, fancy art director. Well, you know, it helps if you're a store operator to hire the likes of Peter Marino at $10 million a shop for his architectural work. It helps. Sometimes it hurts. But if you think of the people you know in your extended network who have the best taste, they're never the richest people. Because when you have unlimited means, you don't um, have to make trade-offs. And I think having great taste is as much as anything about um, smart and mindful trade-offs. And so the first thing I would say is, going back to your question, what can people do? Well, think about the things you're already doing. On the customer level, you're already coming up with a, you know, if you're a retailer, you have a store design, you have a way that people feel when they enter your space. You have a way that you're talking about your products. If you're a a direct-to-consumer, you know, and one of the areas I think we're in the very early stages is um, what I call digital aesthetics, because most digital propositions are still uh, very focused on sort of what I call the the um, antithesis of aesthetics, which is around speed, efficiency, frictionless, you know, user um, ease, and so forth. And that I'm not saying that that isn't important, but I'm saying it, it leaves people with no feeling, except that they were able to get through as quickly as possible, as painlessly as possible. And I don't want I, I don't any business I'm associated with shouldn't be about painlessness. It should be about pleasure. It should be about delight. Um, so um, so on the customer level, those are the things to at least start thinking about. On the employee level, because I've never seen a great business that speaks to the consumer that doesn't also carry that ethos to it, the, the culture of its workplace. And I would think about how do people feel when they're representing you, whether they're in your you know, office or on the road, um, you know, what the, the aesthetics of, of, of corporate culture to me is much more tangible than any other way I could possibly capture culture as it's often discussed and described. Hmm. Yeah. It almost sounds like there's, there's all these things we're focusing on that are marginal improvements, but attacking this, this could be exponential type improvements within a company um, with, with what they can offer to the company to the customers. You were mentioning that we're emotional beings. One of my favorite entrepreneurs, Mary Kay Ash, she had this legendary line. I think it's one of the best lines I've ever heard around business in my entire life. She says, everyone has an invisible sign around their neck that says, make me feel important. And it's yeah. your job to understand how to do that. And I just love that because we always have an ability to interact with an employee, a customer, a boss, and understand what they're feeling and heighten that that emotional connection. Uh, so, so I just really love that. What do you do with the companies you're working with to raise the overall aesthetic intelligence, both for the founders and then the, the employees as well? I'm just wondering when you enter a company, what does that look like? Yeah. Well, so first of all, um, I, I always have to educate them in the beginning because many of the companies that call on me want me to do the work. And sometimes I think it, that would be a fun challenge, you know, to come out with a next generation, you know, car for millennial woman or whatever it is, that would be a very fun challenge, but I would not be doing a service to you because just as I said uh, earlier in the show, that if this doesn't start with a mindset that, and, and, and an ownability 
of a, and a capability that comes from within, it won't last. It, you may have one successful launch, but what happens next? And so I, I'm of the mind, and I've tested this, so I'm all the more convinced today than I was a few years ago, that aesthetic intelligence can be taught. And it, more important than taught, it can be learned. That there are people who are gifted. I will never be as good a chef as an Alain Ducasse. I would never be as good a, um, a, a, a designer and draper as a Donna Karen. There are people coming to this world with extra sensitivity and uh, an attunement and all the things that go into great taste. And they're lucky. But people who are gifted still have to work at it very hard or it atrophies. And people who are not gifted, if they work at it, will get better, inevitably. The best way to think of it, this idea of what I call the other AI, and I call it that because I think it's actually the only uh, AI that we humans can still rely on to uh, stay relevant vis-a-vis -vis the real, the original AI. But um, what, the, what, what I say is um, it's like a muscle. So if, if I, very few of us were born in this world to be um, an Olympic athlete. You know, it takes the luck of certain proportions and, you know, parental influence and so forth. So it's a tiny portion of the population. A hundred percent of the of the population, if I take them on any given day, on any given year, and I come up with, you know, um, a new and healthy and balanced diet and, and, and in, in, insist that they go on a certain regiment, um, and it could even be a very modest one. Uh, change other factors in their life that may be interfering with their good health, lack of sleep, stress. A hundred percent of the population will be healthier one, two, three months later than they were when they started. That's just the law of you know of science. And so I say, if if you believe that you know that these are all in the end just you know connections and the way the brain works and sensitivity and uh, learning how to listen. And um, experimenting because some of having good taste is also being willing to make mistakes, but taking the time to, you know, express and look hard and refine and curate, you know, these are all skills that even the best people in the world have to work really hard at. And so I tell these companies to your quest question, you know, what do I do for them? Let's start with people in critical functions. So, who have different levels, varying levels of AI coming into it. And let's give them all a, um, a methodology for tapping into that and for starting to diagnose where they might need more support, where they already are excelling, how they can then apply some of those skills latent or, or already well-developed to the company or to their job or to a brand that they are thinking to launch. That's what I do. And I've I've worked with some, you know, I'm working with the Ritz Carlton right now, and we have a program that is similar to the one I designed originally at business schools, um, but it's for their general managers, and it's very specific to hospitality. But it takes the principles that I'm talking about and applies it to their properties. One of the entrepreneurs, she's one of my favorite entrepreneurs of all time, that I, I just keep thinking about when you're talking about this, and that's Estee Lauder. I know you worked with Estee Lauder. The reason I keep thinking about her is you said there, there's that innate ability, innate drive. There's something in her, right? She, she loved 
makeup beauty from an early age. And then you talk about influences, her grandfather, who, who was crafting his own lotions in the house, she became obsessed with. But then you talk about the critical point. She had to put in the work. And, and there's this line in, in her incredible uh, biography, if you've never read it, or autobiography, where she says, she's touched more faces than anyone else in the world. She was constantly experimenting and formulating. And I think about when she came up with that color blue. She went in every single bathroom she could, of women's bathrooms, and was testing different colors. And it's just like, yeah, you, you can have that innate ability, but you've got to put in the work as well. Uh, I just thought that yeah. uh, that was such an important point. No, it, look, she was brilliant. And before her time, she understood the power of multisensory marketing, which is, you know, you think about, you walk into a drugstore and if you looked at a Revlon or, you know, a, a L'Oreal product on a shelf, it's sitting behind sort of these vacuum packs in plastic. You can't smell it. You can't touch it. You can't try it. It's just long sort of linear rows of stuff. Um, and at best you're taking a good guess, um, as to whether that particular shade of red is the right one for my lips. And all of a sudden there was this new model in the de department stores. I'm going back to the fifties and sixties and seventies where the more prestige brands were only available there. And you would try things and you would have a woman behind the counter and she'd put cream on your hand. And even just that sort of light massage gave you a a kind of intimacy with this woman you otherwise would never have known or met. And, and, um, and you trusted her. Um, and so it was, you know, and, and you could smell the fragrance, not just because, you know, sometimes it's become obnoxious these days, but because the women were, you know, so quick to spritz you, but maybe they even, you know, subtly sort of um, uh, infuse the area with that particular scent. It was multisensorial. And um, and it gave people a reason not just to go to the counter, but to pay three, four, five x what they would have paid in you know back then the equivalent of a CVS. Yeah, I love that. I I'm wondering for you then. You you've mentioned you've studied so much of this. Who are some of those founders who have just been able to embed this throughout their company that lasts well beyond them? Who have you looked to over the years that you just really admire for the way they did it? Well, um, you know, I mentioned earlier Disney, um, and I'm fascinated by Disney. I know they're going through a transition now, but nonetheless, it, incredible that you could take something, you know, that is uh, as complicated, if you think of all the different moving parts that go into a theme park, and not only could you get people to come and people to spend a lot of money because a Disney vacation is expensive for the average American family, for the average global family. And there are families that come back year after year after year, and they don't tire of it. And so, um, you know, I think um, it, it's in a league of its own among immersive entertainment. Um, and and that was very much, you know, uh, uh, created during his lifetime and with his imagination. It was a world you'd step into. Before that, you know, he started as a cartoonist. So he was making movies he before that he was actually in advertising but he was making movies and i think it's interesting that he was able because there's no other you know um uh, movie production house that has ever made that leap into becoming uh a, i mean they have three big divisions and a lot of subdivisions within those but consumer products theme parks slash travel and hospitality and then entertainment and how they all kind of cascade through. Um, and uh, so I think, you know, it, it, I marvel, number one, that that vision 
could actually come to fruition. Number two, that 50 plus years after Walt has been dead, that they're still able to delight people year after year and such a broad array of people from around the world. Um, and uh, um, so so that would be one. And I, I think, I, I, you know, look, I've never worked in Disney, but I've studied it from afar. I think there are many things they're doing right. But one of them that they were quite um, innovative, and this also started in Walt's lifetime and still exists in a much bigger, more sophisticated form today, is their Imagineering R&D lab. So Imagineering is essentially, uh, I know at its peak, it was, I think, 3,000 people. It serves as like a research and development arm. It's people who come from you know, architecture, computing, and graphics, and material science, and all these sort of hodgepodge of different industries. And they take on the most micro problems. It might be, how do I make that cobblestone in Epcot feel a little bit more antiquated, but more comfortable on the feet? I mean, it might be something that micro. And it, it, it constantly, you know, sort of refining and introducing new rides or ways to make old rides feel new again. Um, and, you know, I don't think, I, I think if I looked at any other immersive, sort of large-scale immersive experience center, you know, Legoland or whatever, which also does quite well, I don't think anyone would have anything that could rival their Imagineering, the way it, they, they bring together and the way their ideas come to market. Yeah. yeah if anyone uh, is a Disney Plus subscriber, there are some great shows at the behind the scenes of the Imagineering department where they talk about mm. how they approach this and, and you get to work or see some of the individual designers. You bring up Disney. I, I want to hear and dive into your concept around the halo effect. And mm. so could you just de define what the halo effect is and then we can dive into it? So the halo effect uh, is not something I coined. It's It's been around, but it basically says that about on average 50% of perceived value of any product or service is not uh, what is not a customer's engagement with that product or service, meaning at the point of purchase or the uh, actual usage of it. But 50, a, a good fifty percent is a combination of the memory and anticipation of that product. So, for example, um, in the Disney scenario, let's say I have a family vacation. I'm going to spend six days down in Orlando. And let's just say my budget for that is in order of four or $5,000, uh, which would not even be a generous budget for a family of four. The way people get comfortable, and this is of course not conscious, but, but it is um, tested uh, and proven, is they sort of feel that about $2,000 of that vacation is what happens when I'm at the park. You know, when I've when I've landed, I've checked in, my kids are on the theme park. There's a lot of things to enjoy about it, but there's also a lot of things that would take away from the value. The fact that Orlando is very hot and muggy, the fact that, you know, you've got to wait on long lines, it's crowded. I mean, there's a lot of detractors. But another 50%, so maybe it'll be another two plus thousand, is the six weeks before I stepped on that airplane. And my kids were excited and we were deciding what to bring to Disney and we were, you know, gearing up for our big trip. And maybe the six months after we came back and we're talking about our family vacation and we're looking at pictures or reminding ourselves through Instagram posts. And as we know, Instagram, you know, is is a perfect uh, partner for Disney because the experience is so Instagrammable. My point being, too often companies are obsessed with what happens when people come in my store 
or come in my service center and or maybe they're obsessed with what happens if I'm an automatic manufacturer with people when people are actually in my cars but they don't think nearly enough about what happens before they're even thinking to come in why how could I get them not just com committed or obliged to come in because they need a replacement but excited how can we create value in the anticipation and how can we extend the experience into the memory who besides Disney? I'm just wondering about uh, an experience that isn't as in-depth as a week at a park. Are yeah. there any companies that come to mind for you? Well, I think I'll, I'll talk about a more contemporary, like, it, why does Warby Parker continue to exist through, you know, good circumstances and bad? I mean, the world around them in D to C has changed radically, and we've seen other companies that were often pooled in a similar bucket, like a Glossier, if not go bust, go in that direction, right? A lot of companies have come and gone while Warby is still relevant. It may not be overtaking Luxottica. It's not changing the entire world of eyeglasses, but it has found a very meaningful and sustainable place. And, you know, when I, when I think back, their designs are good, but pretty generic, you know? And I think um, there's nothing uh, breakthrough that any other company you know, and obviously eyeglasses are relatively easy um, business to replicate from, from a manufacturing standpoint. You know, the plastic on the rims and so forth is nothing proprietary there. And their designs, as I said, are fairly generic in my mind. I think the what, what they've done masterfully is giving it a voice that um, feels relatable, trustworthy, that is fun to engage in. And they've extended that voice, whether you're in one of their shops, which they've increasingly opened um, around the country, or whether you're interacting with them online. They've made it simple, but not functional. It has a lot of personality. And the personality is so consistent with the ethos of the founders and their generation. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of part of that creative class, but not people who are, are you know, on the edges um, and I think they've really had a good sense of where they play, how they play, and how to sort of stay the course. Um, and and I think, so So what I'm saying here is, if I reverse engineered their business model, or their manufacturing, or any other element, there's no reason that for a company that's done very well in a short period of time, that it doesn't have a lot of competitors. But what is very hard to compete with or replicate is a style of expression that they have nailed. And I would say another one I've talked about, you know, and I mentioned earlier the challenges of digital aesthetics, Airbnb. Why is Airbnb so much bigger than HomeAway, VRBO, you know, um, uh, you know, all these other sites in many cases, and actually most of the cases that predated them. It's not like Airbnb had a first mover advantage. It came later. In fact, the only one that had a a true first mover advantage is Craigslist hmm. and Craigslist, you know, which was around, I think started 13 or 14 years before Airbnb was launched is worth probably 3% of, of the market cap of an Airbnb. And what Airbnb does differently, it, it, it's not that, you know, it doesn't own the properties. It doesn't own the relationships. There are many, um, you know, uh, uh, partners that will list in multiple places and they have that right. It's way of expressing to the customer 
how they do what they do, and to get the customer through pixelated images to envision a real experience that is quite aspirational and exciting and desirable is their their tone, their voice, and obviously their design. And interestingly, both founders of Airbnb um, were uh, graduates of Rhode Island School of Design. Unlike all the others, they didn't come out of coding. They came out of design and they understood from an early from the earliest stages that they had to design for trust. In fact, Joe Gebbia gave a very good TED talk on just that. Yeah, I love you bringing in the, the cross-disciplinary approach there and incorporating the design elements um, that, that might not seem that logical uh, from the get-go. I'm wondering, though, what do you think and what do you deem as a brand's best intangible asset? Are, are there other intangible assets that you really, you're more heightened to and you think people should be thinking more about? So, uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, so the, it depends on, um, there, there are different intangible assets, but one of them that I write a lot about, and I do whole workshops on this because it's it's important and it's not that well understood, is what I call brand codes. So brand codes are not, it's, it's not the same as brand identity. Um, they are markers of the brand that typically evolve over time. They uh, don't typically become codes by design. They become codes because they're so powerful and they're so symbolic of everything that brand stands for that the codes become what I call ownable and they, they become leverageable. Hmm. So if, an example, if, if I take a code, Burberry hasn't had state-of-the-art designs now in quite a few years relative to its direct competitors. And as a result, it hasn't grown as well in luxury as some of the others. But its Haymarket check hmm. is a very powerful code where I could see it out of context. I could just see, in fact, recently in the New York Times, I saw a whole... Uh, a full page ad and it was just the check and I knew exactly who that ad was for. And especially if I were a big Burberry buyer and, and, and loyalist, that would mean something to me. Um, Tiffany, um, to own a color so that if I see that very particular shade of blue, which is not sky blue, it's not teal blue, you know, it's Tiffany blue. For, for, if I can, if I just see a box in that blue, even if it's filled with pennies, I think Tiffany and it has value, even though the box literally doesn't have value. Um, and, it, and and by the way, codes aren't just visual things. Um, another example, if I go by a fast food restaurant and I get, and I don't, I can't see, you know, any sign of what that restaurant is, but I get a whiff of McDonald's French fries. It's so iconic. And for most of us who grew up, enjoying that, it brings some emotion to the fore and some, you know, um, appetite forward too, some desirability. And so the smell of a McDonald's French fry is a code and it's something that happens over time. It gets reinforced. So going back to your question about this as an asset, most companies have more codes than they realize. Um, the challenge is number one to learn how to keep them interesting and modern and relevant so, so a code of louis vuitton might be the trunk no one's going to buy a trunk in 2022 because you can't put stow it overhead it's bulky to carry we we travel with a very different um you know uh, um set of requirements 
but they've been able to take the concept of trunk and the concept of travel and the concept of that LV monogram into the future and make it make their codes relevant to a 21st century consumer. Um, so, so I think number one, it's recognizing what are codes. Number two, understanding that a lot of things you've been thinking are codes are not codes. They are generic. You know, Chanel has a lot of codes, but the fact that they use the color black, as does Balenciaga and many other fashion brands, YSL, they don't own black. If I see black out of concept, I don't out of context, I don't think any of those brands. But they each have other things that they can honor and and leverage. So I think over time, that is what gives brands sort of symbols that can live, first of all, beyond the founders and beyond the existing creative teams. Secondly, has emotional connections. Um, and thirdly, could be used in much more powerful ways than most people intuitively know how or have been trained to. The, the word that keeps popping in my mind, and it seems like it's essential in all this, is awareness. Do I, do I have that correct? I think it's judgment. I mean, it okay. starts with awareness. So I always say, you know, if you break down, which is what I do with my um, my my public class, which is Aesthetic Intelligence Labs, I break down taste into four uh, non-mutually exclusive um, components. And they're all important. Some of them are more challenging than others. But the first is just that. It's what I call aesthetic sensitivity or awareness or attunement. Just being aware of what at any given time, we we go through life learning to block and you got to unblock in order to develop these skills. Um, secondly, it's interpretation. So it's not just awareness of what I'm feeling, but awareness of how I feel about it and making connections between, you know, is that the feeling I want other people to have? Is it detracting? Is it confusing? Is it enhancing? So this sort of um, critical analysis around the feelings is the second part. I call it interpretation. The third I call uh, curation, which is knowing how these all these elements come together because in the end, an experience, most people will not be able to tell you exactly why an experience was great or bad. They may point to a few obvious things, but often they don't even get that right. But having the judgment um, and the sort of the eye, it's what I call the editorial command to bring all these pieces together in a co coherent way, in an exciting way. Uh, that's the third. And the fourth, which is really important in um, business, is what I call articulation. How do you put into words or other nonverbal communication um, messaging what it is that I'm, uh, I as a leader of any function or of a company, um, I'm, I'm working towards so other people can support that vision. Very, And this is where I find my business students fall short. They are so smart and they're so disciplined and precise, but they don't use words to their full power. Um, and and I think it's, a, it's, I won't say it's a laziness, but I think, it, again, in business circles, it's something we're not taught to do. And so we don't always realize that, you know, if I, let's say I'm opening a restaurant and I say, the food must be delicious. Well, that means nothing. Delicious means, you know, 10 things to 10 different people. If I say, you know, I want the environment to be warm, that means nothing because warm is felt and experienced differently among different people. But if I can give it a level of specificity that means is the kind of warmth or the kind of, you know, the, 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 um, the, the, the angle on deliciousness that I'm looking for, that's where this becomes um, actionable. 
Mm. That, that's actually an incredible exercise. I know you taught when you were at Harvard, you had your students actually write a restaurant review. I think this is so important for business leaders so we can get a better level of articulation amongst our people. Um, it makes me think of one of the legendary directors and I'm going blank on his name, but he was working with DiCaprio. And he said, I want you to walk, he's talking about how he wants him acting in the scene. He says, I want you to walk in here like you're Frank Sinatra floating on a cloud. That is mm. different than walking here with confidence or something like that. So I, I think articulation is so key. Pauline, I, I have to uh, explore what you mentioned at the beginning of this. You said it evolved from uh, aesthetic intelligence and that's kinesthetic awareness. And can mm. you just dive into what you're thinking there? Because I've had a few people on and, and we've explored kinesthetic awareness. So I just want to know what you're thinking. Yeah. So, uh, you know, first of all, when people hear it, they usually think of athleticism and, and, and that is a big piece of being a great athlete. I'm actually using it a bit different um, in this case, which is more around what I'll call bodily intelligence. So, um, and, and the reason, and, and that is a subcomponent of aesthetic intelligence. Bodily intelligence is knowing not just what's going on in your head, but really what your connection between the world around you and your connection between your mind and your body. Um, and it's, you know, it, it, it's this, it's connected to what I said before around awareness and attunement. Attunement is at any given time, we're bombarded with sounds and smells and, you know, uh, uh, textural uh, sensations. Most of the time, the only ones we notice are the ones that are very painful or that we're looking for, that we're consciously looking out for. Um, but, you know, the first step in this bodily intelligence is saying, how, how, if, if you put your mind to rest, how much can you really pick up that goes above and beyond what you consciously or deliberately are processing? Um, and I also think it's, um, it's, it's establishing a stronger connection between what's going on in your body at any time and how you're feeling or thinking about it. I think the more that you can connect the dots there, that's, I guess, like the mind-body awareness, the more you can put it into action. So example would be, um, you know, a moment ago, I said, if I'm a restaurateur and I want my place to feel warm as, as I think of warm, well, before I can even articulate it, I have to know, because when I'm saying warm, I want my body to feel warm which means I want to use sumptuous materials, maybe certain colors, um, maybe certain, uh, you know, uh, even word choices that give people a warm feeling, a welcoming feeling. And I don't think I'll get the answer first in looking at it intellectually. I think I'll get the answer by imagining how my body responds to all of those different sensorial cues. And so another version of that, um, that is not quite the same, but is related is what I call naturalistic intelligence. So naturalistic intelligence is um, our connection to the environment around us and to our own biology, a little different than our body. So the, the thought here is, you know, we, we spend a lot of time in our heads and we try to be very rational people. But a lot of what makes us who we are is so hardwired. Um, what makes us human is so hardwired that no matter how much we try to talk ourselves out of it, we still find ourselves resorting to things that we can't quite explain. Like a really basic example would be like why in the 21st century 
would we, on average, find men with, you know, if you're a heterosexual woman, you find men with a square jaw more attractive than his, you know, than, than one that has a less square jaw. There's no rationale for that. Well, thousands of years, I'm talking 10,000 or many more years before that, that was that was a rational choice because it was a symbol of of strength and virility and um an ability to protect your offspring and you know we and and we responded to that and now you know in the 21st century there's so many other variables but we are still who we are why in the 21st century do we still care about eating good food we can be nourished as astronauts are with you know powdered substance and you know, we can get the energy through other means as well. But it's just so embedded in the human condition. And so this idea that I think if we're honest about that which makes us human, which goes well before the digital era, goes before the industrial era, goes before the agri- agrarian era, like, and we, we uh, not saying that we have to cave into it, we've evolved as a people and there's, you know, we're civilized and so forth, but but I don't always think we are um, as as aware or as attuned or as um, honest about how much really drives us that cannot be explained by modern science and technology. Yeah, it, it makes me think of this interesting study. It was from a book called The Hour Between the Wolf and the Dog. They were studying uh, some of the best investors, and they actually found out they had a better internal awareness of when their heart was beating. Um, mm. and I just thought th- there's something deeper there. There's this awareness, this attunement into other things, um, that aren't quantifiable. Um, so I love, is this a, wor- a book you're working yes. on now? Uh, not yet, not yet, not yet. Um, not yet, but I, uh, have a series of things coming out in the coming year. Um, you know, book, my, my issue with books is even if I started today, you wouldn't get to read anything probably until 2024. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I'm of the mind that, um, you know, now that I've kind of set the stage with the original one, I want to take all the different platforms I've built up and continue the conversation, but more fluidly, more in real time. And I'd like to be more hands-on. I want to, I don't just want to tell stories. I really want to work with people interactively and, um, and help the development of individuals and companies. Well, we're going to have everything linked up here where people can stay connected with you. But if you could do this, if you could have a long form conversation with anyone dead or alive, who would you love just getting to ask any question of? Ooh, I've never been asked that question. Um, hmm. So among living, I'd probably want to just because uh, I'm just so fascinated and so bewildered, but I probably want to talk with the Pope. on the one hand, you know, I was at the Vatican uh, in Rome this summer, and I thought, how weird, talking about um, being hardwired towards certain things that don't make sense in the 21st century. You know, uh, the life of a pope and the commitment to religious text and and, and order is, is so foreign to me. Um, and uh, and yet I, I think he's so wise and so brilliant, and I listen to all his missives, and so I think it would just be fascinating to understand kind of the man behind the symbol. Um, and if I could go back uh, even further, um, oh, it would be, I would want to, you know, I, in order to not work, not so much for the purposes of a book, I'm not going to write, but in order to further my, my thinking on naturalistic intelligence, um, I'd probably want to go back to um, one of our founding fathers 
um, you know, when you when you think of the conditions, and I was just reading about this on the heels of Thanksgiving weekend, um, about what it was like to be a pilgrim. Half of the uh, original um, uh, um, occupants of the Mayflyer died en route, right? And they get here, and they have hostile enemies, and you know they're depending on a, a good harvest season, uh, and you know all sorts of diseases and and other threats took over, and the you know winters in New York, which is around where we're or New England where they landed, aren't very forgiving, and uh, and yet for those who survived and who kind of made the backbone of America today, you know, to understand the, the, the grit that they had to have and the conviction and uh, also to understand that they found joy. I mean, that's where the concept of Thanksgiving was, was founded, right? That they were celebrating all the, all the reasons to be grateful, notwithstanding incredible challenges and duress. So, uh, so I'd probably go back to either one of the early settlers or one of the founding fathers and, uh, and really want to pick their brain. I love that. Great place to wrap up here. Pauline, where can everyone stay connected with you? Uh, obviously we'll have everything linked up, including your book, Aesthetic Intelligence. Um, just want to make sure that you have a ability just to tell people where to go. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, so, um, I, I, I have a cohort approached uh, process to learning aesthetic intelligence. It's the foundations of aesthetic intelligence. You can go to aestheticintelligencelabs.com. Our next cohort starts uh, in mid-January. It's the winter cohort. People come from around the world. They go through. It's asynchronous, so you can do it on your own time, but we do have live events. Um, and if uh, you have other questions for me, you can also reach me. Um, through Aesthetic Intelligence Labs or very simply Pauline at aestheticintelligence.com. Fantastic. Well, Pauline, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me and great question, Sean. Very impressed. Hey guys, it's Sean, and as 2022 is coming to a close, I'm sure you're thinking about year-end reflections, year-end reviews, and then how do you set and accomplish the goals you want in 2023? Well, if you're one of those people who's interested in that, I put together a 30-minute presentation. Now, this is what I use with the clients that I coach, some of which have been on this show, some of those high performers who are really trying to uncover what worked for them in 2022, what didn't really reflect on that, and then jump into 2023 with uncovering what really matters to you in life and then building goals and habits around that. So if you're interested in that, if you really want to get the most out of your coming year, then like I said, I put together a 30-minute presentation. It's my ultimate annual review and jumpstart in the 2023 program. Now, this is what I use with the clients that I mentioned. So if you're interested in checking that out, just click the link below. You can watch the full presentation there. And if you're interested in working with me one-on-one -on -one to help you in your annual review and jumpstart in 2023, just shoot me an email, sean at whatgotyouthere.com. Once again, the link is below for you guys to check out the video presentation. And if you're interested in working with me, shoot me an email, sean at whatgotyouthere.com. Thanks, guys.